0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about a movement to organize a People's Senate. Also going to be discussing some developments regarding Syria. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: Well, back on January 8th, 2021, I said this about the attempted insurrection that had just occurred just a few days before. They had been planning something for four whole years. I said yesterday at the time that Roger Stone actually created the Stop the Steal website in 2016 ahead of the presidential election as a fundraising tool. Stone first brought the phrase up in the Republican primaries that year when he alleged that a cabal of Republicans was colluding to steal the nomination from Trump. Then when Trump won the nomination, Stone revamped the messaging for the general election, alleging that if the election were close, Hillary Clinton and the Democrats were going to steal it from Trump. The Stop the Steel hashtag was also floated around in the 2018 midterms when Republicans used it in close races in the states. A bunch of Stop the Steel Facebook pages and groups were launched by a bunch of right-wing operatives, including people who worked with Steve Bannon. Facebook shut some of the pages down, citing the false information they were spreading, but page names were changed and copycat pages proliferated, and the next thing you know, the page just spreading the false information about a stolen election or fraud reached over 2.5 million followers. So yesterday's January 6th committee hearing was interesting. But nothing surprising in regard to the fact that, yes, Trump did indeed know the election was just lost. And he went on with his Stop the Steal campaign anyway, because that was always the plan in the event that he lost. Since 2016, it was the plan. I don't believe for a second that Roger Stone and Steve Bannon hadn't floated their cockamamie idea to Trump before the election. And I don't believe that Trump just organically came up with the whole Stop the Steal bit himself. The campaign literally already existed. It was interesting, though, to see former Trump campaign staff struggle to carefully choose their words so as not to come right out and say, we told him that he lost, but he kept saying he did it, and this whole thing is entirely his unhinged fault, although Bill Barr actually did come pretty close to saying exactly those words. But as I said yesterday, folks like Bill Steppian, who did provide videotaped testimony with his attorney sitting right beside him as he carefully parsed his words, those folks need to be careful not to anger the Trump faction of the GOP, which is pretty much the whole party and most of the base because they still want to work in politics. Even Trump's own daughter, Ivanka, was clearly trying very hard to be delicate with what she said about her father's response to his election loss. That was very weird watching her struggle to explain how she was trying to distance herself from her father's actions without letting him know that she was doing it. And good grief. What was she afraid of? I wondered. Drunk Giuliani should be a hashtag because it is a fitting end to the career of such a repulsive person. Nothing more needs to be said about that dude. But I think the most important aspect of yesterday's hearing was the revelation that the Trump campaign sent millions of emails to Trump supporters after the election telling them that they needed to, quote, step up to protect election integrity. That's important because that stepping up meant sending money to the Trump campaign to fund the official election defense fund. And Trump supporters did send money. $250 $250 million. But here's the thing the fund never actually existed. Where did the money go, you ask? to Trump's Save America Political Action Committee that he had just created, which then made contributions to Mark Meadows' charity, then to a conservative organization employing Trump staffers, to the Trump Hotel Collection, and to the company that organized the rally that preceded the attack on the Capitol last January 6th. And I think that's the shame of this whole thing. Those folks who complained to the point of violent protests about how this country needed to be opened back up during the pandemic because they were missing paychecks and their businesses were losing money and closing, and they sent Donald Trump $250 million to a fund that didn't exist to mitigate an election that he lied about being stolen from him. I think I said it before at some point, but it's worth saying again, Donald Trump ripped his supporters' off. Their lives didn't improve materially under his presidency. They just enjoyed having a president who believed the same hateful, small-minded rhetoric they did. And he took their money and got them to attempt an insurrection for slaps and giggles to boot. And Trump's supporters absolutely believed in him. Yes, they believed his lies as the testimony of some of the rioters reflected fake election. They're going to cheat us out of our vote. One man who showed up with a sledgehammer said on camera, it ain't F happening. Another man complained about Dominion voting machines saying that he can't really trust the software, and a woman said she was standing up because she believed her voting machine was hacked. In police body camera footage, another man angrily confronts a cop with Trump's lies about 200,000 people that weren't registered to vote who voted. And a man who filmed himself inside the Capitol after they had broken in said into his camera, I don't want to say that what we're doing is right, but if the election is being stolen, what's it going to take? And those people came to D.C., assaulted the cops they defended every single time. Those cops killed one of us, trespassed the U.S. Capitol, destroyed federal property and went on the hunt for politicians to hang, all because Donald Trump told them to. I don't know that we can change the minds of people who went along with Trump's grift so wholeheartedly. I think we need to come to grips with the fact that we cannot save this country from itself. What we must do is organize and fight to build something better, even for some of the people who were willing to fight so hard for a complete lie. Follow Luke Mann Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mann Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie LukeMan, And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
2: By any means necessary.
0: And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Jalil Muntakin, an activist, former political prisoner and Black Panther, and the author of We Are Our Own Liberators. Brother Jalil, thanks so much for joining us.
3: It's my pleasure, my brother. Assalamualaikum, Peace, pass, Havada Ghani, Jumbo, and all the, the, all the uh, greetings and solidarity peace and peace and greetings and solidarity that have for all people in the world.
0: Absolutely. And uh, Brother Jalil, I know that uh, the in the spirit of Mandela uh, effort, uh, you all are now engaged in this move to build a, a people's Senate. And I was hoping you could explain uh, just what is uh, this people's Senate that you all are hoping to build and, and why you feel uh, it is necessary.
3: If you don't mind, uh, I'll read what we have written uh, in terms of the uh, like a preamble for the people's Senate. The People's Senate is an organized population building a future that manifests the means by which they will be governed. Absent white supremacy, absent capitalist exploitation, absent imperialism, absent patriarchy, and the colonization of people's resources throughout the world. The People's Senate will be organized from the ground up and not the top down, ensuring that most in need will be heard and their issues be the first to be addressed by a collective determination of the Senate. Essentially, people's citizens will empower the people to destroy the system of individualism, competition, and institutional racism and build a system of cooperation and collective sharing of resources. This is important because the system of white supremacy and capitalization profits before people permits the hoarding of wealth and seeks to repress any form of resistance to racist national oppression. The task before us is to force an organized determination that grants activists, organizers, abolitionists, Emancipators and liberators to join and in building the structure, socioeconomic economic, and political goals and objectives of the People's Senate. This includes developing people's assemblies in each region where poor and oppressed people are disenfranchised and repressed. These assemblies will be the organized voice of the community, building decolonization programs and addressing the immediate needs of those communities. The assemblies will be convened by those in the region prepared to work together under the agreed principles established by the collective decision of the People's Senate. So what we're doing, we're saying that the that the government, that which we have been um, allegiance to, have an allegiance to, a corporate colonial government, which we have allegiance to, it does not function in the best interest of the people. And therefore, it is it is our duty, it is our responsibility to create an alternative to the existing power structure. And we are going to do so by what we we'll call a People's Senate. And so we are developing the means and mechanisms for which we can have um, people vote, uh, for their senators in the particular regions, dividing the country into regions uh, so people can vote for their senators. And we're going to develop a, 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 a collective of activists and uh, revolutionaries, uh, abolitionists, organizers, uh, emancipators and activists uh, who will be uh, responsible for engendering a new form of people govern- being empowered and governing themselves. Uh, we are tired of living under the system of white supremacy. We've been living under the system of white supremacy for the last 400 years. White supremacy needs to be ushered into the dustbin of history, and the only way, that, one of the ways that we have to go about doing so, is creating an alternative governing body, which will consist of the people. One thing that is important for people to understand in this regard, in this regard, is this: here. the corporate government that we operate today. Works for the purpose of profits over people. Why? Because the United States government is, in fact, a corporation. According to 28 U.S.C. 15 a it informs us that the United States is a federal corporation. And under the the, the decision of the Supreme Court in Hobby versus Lobby, stated that corporations are people. And now, if you look at that in the understanding of what they're talking about, they're saying that this corporation called the government function in behalf of other corporations that they consider people, not in support of sentient human beings, blood and flesh human beings. No. Blood and flesh human beings are considered wage slave uh, wagers, and that's about it, right? We are laborers for the corporate entity. And that's the reason why we're finding ourselves that these corporations are getting exorbitant profits, even during a pandemic, while the people are suffering, all right? We have to change the way that we look at ourselves and look at the, the, uh, the system of which we are being governed. And they not governed in the best interest of the people. And so we're going to build what we call a people senate. And we're going to organize a new governing body comprising of the people themselves and it's in the interest of the people and not in the interest of corporations.
1: So... Brother Hunter-Kane, how do we go about the work of uh, getting people invested in this new governing body that some people would probably say, "Well, that sounds kind of like the electoral system that exists now how do we how do we convince people that this new governing body, the people' Senate uh, is something that is more beneficial to them? What is the First step that the organizing bodies in these regions will combat to bring people into this uh, new uh, people senate.
3: Right, exactly. That's a good question. Uh, very soon we will be issuing a a document that will indicate exactly how the people senate will be organized. How we're we going to establish our senators and how we're we going to how they're going to be elected. How we're we going to establish the, the people's assembly which is very important right it's not on us to do this it's up for the people to do so right now it's up to them to make a decision as to whether or not they want to live better right according to their being empowered uh by themselves by their own organizing organizing for their future and the future of their children future for the next generation and so for us it is is providing the space for which the people can have opportunity uh, to decide how they want to live going forward if they want to continue to live under a system of white supremacy, or do they want to live in a system that is more uh, cooperative, uh equalitarian, and, and have equity and equal, equality uh, amongst us, right, in terms of all the resources that we are able to uh, garner. Between us. So uh soon, again, we'll be distributing a, a, a document, uh, introducing the People's Senate to various organizations across the country, and then it will be up to them to decide whether they want to be a part of this uh, process good the people said keep in mind that the United States when it first came into existence I think it was about uh, 12 or 14 uh, uh, white men who put this organization who put this organization this organization called the United States government into existence so don't tell me uh, no one can tell me that we cannot do the same right as you remember uh in the I think it was, uh, uh, declaration of a declaration independence uh the uh, uh Jefferson the Jefferson doctrine that indicated that uh, after 20 years if we find that this government is engaged in tyranny if people have the right to rise up and establish a new government. And that's what we intend to do.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you know, I appreciate this concept of a people's senate because it 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 seems focused on taking the power to govern society and placing it squarely in the hands of the people who actually make that society run as opposed to what we have now in the United States, which is uh where society is ran by uh, a wealthy elite, the the capitalist class, and the decisions that they make and the actions that they take are to the the detriment and the exploitation and the destruction of the masses of poor working and oppressed people in this country. And so it seems to me, Brother Jalil, that, you know, we can't shy away from this uh, question of power. It really is fundamental. I would go so far as to say that it's a life and death decision. And I mean, you mentioned uh, the COVID-19 pandemic earlier. I mean, here in the U.S., I mean, the wealthiest nation on earth, we're already at uh, over a million deaths from that. And so when we talk about the power to really um, shift and move society and to make it operate for the uh, benefit and in the interest of the masses of poor, working, and oppressed people, then that's something that's going to take a, a real kind of struggle. But we can't be afraid of power as a concept to really carry these things through. You know what I mean? And
3: I, I, You're absolutely correct. I think one thing that's important for people to understand that there are 740 billionaires in the United States 740 billionaires, and they have the cumulative wealth of $6.2 trillion. The equivalent wealth of all the wealth of Western Europe is in the hands of 750 or 740 billionaires here in the United States. We don't live in a democracy. Like we live in a plutocracy. The rich rules, all right? And so in that understanding, they will continue to seek uh, the way, the way in which they can profit over people's lives. And for us, we have to get tired. We got to be. We got to get. not more tired. We got to get angry by the fact that we have been duped into a social order that is basically tantamount to wage slavery, right? The majority of people, and so we have a 750 people, 750 billionaires that controls the governing of this nation of 330 million people. So yes, uh, I think we needed uh, to come to a, a reflect on the fact that in, in many instances we can say we've been complicit, complicit in our own oppression. Because we've allowed this system to to evolve into what it is today. And I'm saying to us, uh, generally speaking, that we have the power to change that. Uh, To not be, to be uncooperative in terms of how we've been exploited and the oppression of uh, black, brown, and indigenous people. One other thing that you may mention, we're talking about the the, the COVID uh, pandemic, right? Uh, One of the things that, uh, you said one million people have died. majority of those people that died are black and brown people. Black and brown people. Right uh we have to also uh, when, when I say that uh, I, it's important that that's not just just the COVID, it's across the board, right? white people life expansion in the United States is twice as long than that of black and brown people. isn't twice as long as the black and brown people. Why is that? That's the question we need to raise, right? and it's due to the idea of white supremacy, which is an aberrant, aberrant mental illness that we have not really taken into account or, and, and or treated, right. Uh, why is it a mental illness? Because white supremacy is based upon the idea of, of uh, um, a superiority complex. It's a superiority complex. And if you look at any DSM uh, uh, book on uh, 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 mental disorders, you'll find uh, a superiority complex right there as a mental, il- mental illness. And so when we look at the, the depth of superiority complex and white supremacy, you see that they correspond with one another. It's a mental illness. And it's a long... Has become generational. It has become genetic, and these, and 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 these people's uh, uh, attitudes towards themselves and their attitudes towards people of color around the world. And so, as I've had, I've had a uh, um, a um, a webinar, an uh, international webinar, one thing I told the international community that their freedom, their freedom is dependent upon our freedom, right? Uh, and so, it is extremely important that we uh, uh, build out. Uh, the People's Senate will not only build our People's Senate, but inform people about the verdict of the International Tribunal. As the United States has been found guilty of five charges of genocide against black, brown, and indigenous people. That's extremely important. That is the foundation for which we're going to build the People's Senate. Without that foundation, people have no understanding of why we're doing so. We're doing so because we've been living in a system of genocide for the last 400 years. Tired of it. Done it. It's done. White white supremacy is done right we going to put the end to this crap All right now
1: and brother Munji came i think it's not um uh, not uncoincidental that this effort is being undertaken as the hearings are being aired of the January 6th commission, and we're seeing the, the the depth of the violence that was committed on that day and the level to which people actually believed the lies that were uh, propagated from the Trump administration, really believing that in carrying out that violence uh, against cops, even uh, who they always sided with whenever those uh, police forces uh, abused black and brown people for de- standing up for our right to exist, uh, it, 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 you know, we are seeing the depths to which they believed they were defending the system of America. They were defending the ideals of America that they believed this country was founded on that they think represented them. And, and I think the interesting thing is that when you mentioned, you know, the, the 12 or, or so uh, white men who who developed the principles that this uh, country was founded on. They were all landowning white men, and they did not express any interests that were not reflective of uh, men like themselves. Like, like, they didn't create the Bill of Rights and the Constitution to reflect the interests of people who were not wealthy landowning white men. So, what do you say to people who think that what we need to do is to save America and to bring it back to uh its uh founding fathers ideals? Well, what is your response to people who say that Yes.
3: If we if we agree to that, then we're saying that we want to reinstitute uh, our slavery in the United States because of those those founding fathers, majority of them were also slaveholders. OK, and I also understand that according to the Constitution, that's uh, 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 of independence, uh, black men, black women, black children, black people in this country are still considered three-fifths of a human being. Right, it's still in the book. That's not been removed. All right? And so the change similarly in regards to the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution. There's an exception clause in the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution that says, that says slavery exists in the United States. It continues to exist. So slavery was never abolished in this country uh, uh, in uh, 1860, 1863, 1865, right? It was institutionalized. What they did do, they stopped chattel slavery. They stopped private people from owning, from owning people, having people as property. But they allowed the state to do so, duly convicted of a crime, right? Chattel slavery or slavery and volunteer services should not exist in the United States or its jurisdiction, except for those who are duly convicted of a crime. The exception Clause informs us that slavery still exists in the United States. And therefore, these prisons that we call prisons across the country are basically slave plantations. That's what they are. And that's the reason. One of the reasons why we have this mass incarceration of black, brown, and indigenous people uh, across this country, to continuing this multi-billion dollar industry where corporations are investing in prison. Why do corporations invest in prison? Why? Because it's free labor. Right, free labor, and they are profiting off people's misery, right, across, the, across this country. And so when we look at what the founding fathers have done, they have done nothing in, in the best interest of black, brown, indigenous people. They always worked in the interest of white people, right, in, 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 in consolidating, institutionalizing, structuring uh, white supremacy. And that's what we engage with today. And that's the reason why you have these individuals who, um, who um, uh, stormed. Storm Congress, right? Freedom storm Congress. If there were black and brown people, storming Congress like that, there'd have been bodies all over, the, all over the congressional plazas. We know that. Why didn't want done down to these white folks? Because they're all on the same page, the same page of white supremacy. So they may not like what they did, but in terms of the ideological and philosophical foundation, they're all on the same page. All right, and so we need to understand it. We need to stop being deluded into this idea of this American dream. For us, it's always been a nightmare. Right. as al uh, uh uh once told us, he said, we did not land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. So if we got to come under, um, from underneath Plymouth, uh, Plymouth, uh, uh, Plymouth Rock and build uh, towards our own national liberation independence. That's our goal and objective. That's what the, Plymouth, the People's Senate will be moving towards uh, developing.
0: Definitely. I mean, and you're correct when you know I'm saying when you talk about how uh, mass incarceration is an in industry. I mean, it emerges um, really as a necessity for the capitalist system after the formal end of slavery. And so it's no mistake then. It's no coincidence that, you know, legally in the United States, slavery is still allowed under the conditions of uh, uh, mass incarceration. And Brother Jalil, when, when we take a look at why, you know, uh, uh, these kinds of movements and efforts are needed, like a uh, uh, building. The People's Senate. I mean, it really seems to fall in line with a lot of what we're uh, seeing today with, you know, the movement for black lives, the struggle for uh, 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 reproductive justice, uh, immigration rights, workers' rights, you know, uh, labor struggles, and so many other things. It's just clear that the poor, working, and oppressed people of this country and this world will have to organize uh, uh, for their own interest if uh, we're going to be able to, uh, frankly, stay intact and for, you know, the the, the sanctity and wholeness of the planet and of humanity as we know it.
3: I am totally agreeing with you uh, when you say stay intact. But I think it was important to understand that there's going there to be some changes, some real serious changes in terms of our thinking, in terms of our relationship with one another, in terms of how we are being governed. Uh, as you well know, we talk about the, uh, the um, um, maintaining of the planet, right? I mean, just the idea that white supremacy. Uh, uh, the system of white supremacy is destroying the planet, right? Uh, before, for the purpose of profit, right? Over people, right? It should be the motor force in order for people to be engaged in the process of change, real serious, institutional, and governing change. And so uh, we have to really move towards understanding the history of this country, not only the history of this country, but how it has functioned in terms of uh, exporting uh, people of color around the world. Listen. The United States has uh, uh, sanctions against against uh, uh, of seventy nations around the world. No, excuse me. They have sanctions against forty nations around the world, and they engage in seventy wars around the world. What they call uh, LIC, low intensity conflicts around the world, and the majority of those conflicts, more majority of those those, those struggles, are in people are in countries people of color, right? Targeted people of color. Now, if we just want to just look at it, and I just I want to make this point. Uh, uh, very short and precise, right? Where this thing started, right? Nine, in 1493, a papal bull, papal bull from uh, Ferdinand Fourth. issued by the papal bull in 1493, told the Portuguese and the Spanish to go around the world and conquer any nation, particularly black nations, brown nations, red nations, and, and put them under, the, uh, the, under the, the authority of the church. Right, that's where that's where one of these uh, uh, dynamics of genocidal uh, uh, imperialism uh, began. Right, and so if you don't understand this history and how it's being promoted, then we don't know where we are today and where we need to go in the future. We have to end the system of white supremacy. We have to end the system of capitalist imperialism. Period.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Brother Jalil, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
1: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, along with Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are commemorating the anniversary of Paul Robeson testifying before the House Committee on Un-American Activities, uh, which happened on June 12th in 1956. And this was an incredibly important testimony uh, in front of an incredibly problematic, deeply undemocratic body, which portends i think to the issues and the struggles of freedom of speech and anti-communist rhetoric that we are still facing today so let's hear what paul robeson had to say then
4: are you now a member of the communist
5: party oh please please please
6: please answer will you mr robeson what
5: is the communist party what do you mean by that are you now a member of the Communist? would you like to come to the ballot box when i vote and take off the ballot
4: and see? Mr. Chairman, I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question.
6: You are directed to answer the question.
5: I invoke the Fifth Amendment and forget it.
6: I respectfully
4: suggest the witness be directed to answer the question, whether, if he gave us a truthful answer, he would be supplying information which might be used against him in a criminal proceeding.
6: You are directed to answer, Gentleman, Mr. Ruffin.
5: In the first place, wherever I have been in the world, the first to die in the struggle against fascism were the communists I laid many wreaths upon the graves of communists that is not criminal Chief Justice Warren has been very clear that the fifth amendment does not have anything to do with the influence of criminality and I invoke the fifth amendment have you ever been known under the name of John please? does somebody here want me to put up for perjury someplace. John Thomas, my name is Paul Robeson, and anything I have to say, I have said in public all over the world, and that is why I'm here today.
6: Mr. Chairman, I ask that you direct the witness to answer the question he's making. A I
4: ask you to affirm or deny the fact that your Communist Party name was I John invoke Thomas. the
5: Fifth Amendment. This is really ridiculous.
6: The witness talks very loud when he makes a speech, but when he invokes the Fifth Amendment, I can't hear him. I have medals for diction. Right.
5: I can talk any loud. Will you talk a little louder? I invoke the Fifth Amendment loudly.
4: Sir, who are Mr. and Mrs. Vladimir I in the invoke Kiev?
5: the Fifth Amendment. Do
4: you know a Manning Johnson? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Do you know Gregory Keifetz? I
5: invoke the Fifth Amendment. Do you know a Max Jurgen? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Max Juergen...
6: Why don't you can have those? these people here to be cross-examined? Could I ask whether this is legal? This is not only legal, but usual. By unanimous vote, this committee has been instructed to perform this very distasteful task. To whom am I talking? You're speaking to the chairman of the committee.
5: Mr. Walter? Yes. The Pennsylvania Walter? That is right. Representative of the steel workers? That is right. And the coal mining
6: workers? That is right. Not
5: United States steel, by any chance. Our great patriot. That is right. You are the author of the bills that are going to keep all kinds of decent people out of the country. No,
6: only your kind.
5: Colored people like myself? and you would let in the Teutonic
6: Anglo-Saxon stock. We are trying to make it easier to get rid of your kind, too. You don't want any colored people to come in.
4: Could I be allowed to read from my statement? Will here? you just tell this committee, please, while under oath, Mr. Robson, the communists who participated in the preparation of
5: that statement? Oh, please. The reason I'm here today, from the mouth of the State Department itself, is I should not be allowed to travel because I have struggled for the independence of the colonial peoples of Africa. The other reason I am here today, again, from the State Department and from the record of the Court of Appeals, is that when I am abroad, I speak out against injustices against the illegal people in this land. That is why I am here. I am not being tried for whether I am a communist. I am being tried for fighting for the rights of my people. We're still second-class citizens in this country, in this United States of America. My mother was born in your state, and my mother was a Quaker. My ancestors, in the time of Washington, baked bread for George Washington's troops when they crossed the Delaware. My father was a slave. I stand here struggling for the rights of my people to be full citizens in this country. And we are not. We are not in Mississippi. We are not in Montgomery, Alabama. They are not in Washington. They are nowhere. And that is why I am here today. You want to shut up every negro who has the courage to stand up and fight for the rights of his people, for the rights of workers, and I have been on many a picket line for the steel workers too. And that is why I'm here today. Would you
4: tell us whether or not you know Thomas W. Young? I invoke
5: the Fifth Amendment.
4: Thomas W. Young is a Negro president of the Guide Publishing Company. I'd like to read you his testimony. Quote, Paul Robeson has no moral right to place in jeopardy the welfare of the American Negro to advance a foreign cause. In the eyes of the Negro people this false prophet is unfaithful to their country and they repudiate
5: him. Close quote. Do you know the man that said that. I invoke the fifth amendment now. Can I read my statement? It is a sad and bitter comment.
4: While you were in Paris in 1949, Mr. Robeson, did you tell an audience the American Negro would never go to war against the Soviet
5: government? May I say that is slightly out of context. May I explain to you what I did say? I remember the speech very well. 2,000 students who came from populations that would range to six or seven hundred million people asked me to say in their name that they did not want war. No part of my speech in Paris says 15 million American Negroes would do anything. I said it was my feeling that the American people would struggle for peace, and that has been since underscored by the President of the United States. Now in passing, I said... Do you know un-
6: any people who want war?
5: Listen to me. I said it was unthinkable to me that any people could take up arms in the name of a man like Senator Eastland of Mississippi against anybody. Gentlemen, I still say that. This United States government should go to Mississippi and protect my people. That is what it should I lay before you, sir, an article.
4: Quote, I am looking for full freedom, unquote, by Paul Robeson in The Worker. July third, nineteen 1949, quote, I said it was unthinkable that the Negro people of America or elsewhere could be drawn into war with the Soviet Union.
5: I repeat it with a hundredfold emphasis. They will not close, quote. And, gentlemen, they have not. It is clear that no Americans are going to go to war with the Soviet Union. While you were in Stockholm, did you make a little speech? I made all kinds of speeches. Let me read you a quotation. Let me listen. Do so, please. I am a lawyer.
6: It would be a revelation if you would listen
5: to counsel. In good company, I usually listen. But you know, people wander around in such fancy places.
4: You said, Mr. Robson, and I quote, I belong to the American resistance movement, which fights against American imperialism, just as the resistance movement fought against Hitler.
5: Just like those Douglas and Harriet were underground railroaders and fighting for our freedom, you bet your life.
6: I have to insist that you listen to these questions. I am listening. I quote further, Why should the Negroes
4: ever fight against the only nation in the world where racial discrimination is prohibited and where the people can live freely? Never. They will never fight against either the
5: Soviet Union or the People's Democracies, close quote. Did you make that statement? I do not remember, but what is perfectly clear today is that 900 million people, other colored people, have told you they will not. 400 million in India and millions everywhere have told you when that. This has answered
4: the question. He doesn't need to make a speech. Did you write an article that was published in the USSR Information Bulletin? Yes. Quote, I want to emphasize that only here in the Soviet Union. Did I feel that I was a real man with a capital M, close uh, quote?
5: I would say, what is your name? errant. I am quite willing to answer the question. When I was a singer years ago, and this, this you will have to listen to. I am listening. I am a bass singer, and so for me it was Chelyopin, the great Russian bass, not Caruso, the tenor. I learned the Russian language to sing their songs. I wish you would listen now
6: Mr. Chairman, I ask you to direct the witness to answer the question Just be fair with me I ask for order The great
4: poet
5: of Russia is of African blood
6: well, Let us not go so it far is to
5: explain this Did you make that statement? When I first went to Russia in 1934 Did you make that statement? When I first went to Russia in Did 1934 Did you make that statement? In Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being No color prejudice like in Mississippi No color prejudice like in Washington It was the first time I felt like a human being Well, I do not feel the pressure of color as I feel it in this committee today. Why do you not stay in Russia? Because my father was a slave, and my people died to build this country. And I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you, and no fascist-minded people will drive me from it. Is that clear?
6: You are here because you are promoting the communist
5: cause. I am here because I am opposing the neo-fascist cause, which I see arising in these committees. Jefferson could be sitting here, and Frederick Douglass could be sitting here. Eugene Debs could be sitting here.
6: Now, what prejudice are you talking about? You were graduated from Rutgers. You were graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. I remember seeing you play football at Lehigh. There was no prejudice against you. Just a moment.
5: This is something I challenge very deeply, that the success of a few Negroes can make up for $700 a year for thousands of Negro families in the South. My father was a slave. And I have cousins who are sharecroppers. I do not see success in terms of myself. I have sacrificed hundreds of thousands of dollars for what I believe in. While you
4: were in Moscow, Mr. Robs, did you make a speech lauding Stalin? I can't remember. Have you recently changed your mind about Stalin?
5: Stalin, gentlemen, is a question for the Soviet Union, and I won't argue with a representative of the people who, in building America, wasted the lives of my people. You are responsible, you and your forebears, for 60 to 100 million black people dying in the slave ships and on the plantations. Don't you ask me about anybody? I'm
4: sure you wouldn't want to discuss with us the slave labor camps in the nothing can build
5: more on slavery than this society. I assure you.
4: I would invite your attention to the Daily Worker of June 29, 1949, with reference to a get-together with you and Ben Davis, formerly Communist councilman in New York. Do you know Ben Davis? One of my
5: dearest friends. He is a Patriotic and American as can be, and you, gentlemen, are the non-patriots. Just a minute! <clears throat> are the un americans
6: The hearing is now adjourned. I
5: think it should be.
6: I've endured all of this, and I can't. can. And I read my statement now. The meeting is adjourned. It should be.
1: Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Today, the U.S. doesn't take our passports away for vocally opposing uh, U.S. imperialism as Paul Robeson's passport was taken away from him. And in 1958, the Supreme Court finally ruled that a citizen's right to travel could not be taken away without due process. Robeson's passport was eventually returned. But today... The very same demonizations and accusations that were used against Robeson in that hearing are used against us leftists, particularly us leftists of color for continuing to oppose the very same U.S. imperialism as we speak up and challenge the U.S.-EU-NATO proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, as we speak up and challenge a continuing U.S. imperialism around the world, as we speak up and, chal- and challenge U.S. sanctioning of countries around the world in defense of the 40 global South nations and their over 3 billion people In those nations, we American leftists, particularly we American leftists of color, are continued to be demonized just as Paul Robeson was when he stood up against the very same U.S. imperialist system. So in a way, as we commemorate his brave testimony and his vanguard example, we realize that we are in the right struggle. We are on the right path, and we carry on the work of Paul Robeson to stand up and challenge U.S. imperialism and to defeat it for all the peoples of the world and all of our freedom once and for all. We're out of time for this segment. You are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, here with Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
2: By any means necessary...
0: by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, the editor of techforthepeople.org and co-host of the Reboot podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be back with you. Absolutely. And Chris, it's being reported that there's a, a, a Senate bill proposal that uh, at least on the surface seemed like it was designed uh, to try to bring some regulation to the cryptocurrency industry uh, in terms of oversight and things like this. But I mean, the way it's playing out may seem like it's even uh, furthering and powering uh, crypto instead of reeling it in. And so I was hoping you could break down uh, just what's happening. Happening here and what this could mean in terms of the whole uh, crypto issue.
7: Yeah, so there's uh, there's a lot going on here today with this. So there's a bill um, in the Senate uh, that has been introduced by Cynthia Lummis and uh, Kirsten Gillibrand. So Lummis is a Republican from Wyoming, Gillibrand, a Democrat from New York, and they would have cryptocurrencies be regulated by the CFTC, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which very few people, I think, outside of finance have even heard of, but rather than the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, and, I, I, you know, it's definitely a win for the crypto industry if the industry continues to exist. Um, and because if we look at what's happening, you know, this week, we are seeing a major, major crash in not just Bitcoin, of course, the largest and probably most, uh, you know, infamous of the cryptocurrencies, but also Ethereum and Litecoin. It was just announced uh, today that Coinbase, which is one of the largest uh Cryptocurrency-related companies is firing or fired today 1,100 people. Um, that's a significant part of its workforce, and they're blaming, of course, the general economic climate um, for getting rid of 18% of their entire team. Um And all of the – and these employees were just basically locked out of their accounts before the CEO sent out a message. Um, Brian Armstrong sent out a message this morning that has since been publicly posted on the Coinbase blog. So this bill, very curious, because if you look at it, Cynthia Lummis of Wyoming, uh, according to Open Secrets, uh, gets a whole lot of money from the cryptocurrency industry. So one of her biggest contributors is MultiCoin Capital, which is finances and invests in cryptocurrency related businesses. Uh, there's reinventing a new direction, which is the Rand Pack, uh, Rand calls uh political action committee. Um, also, Payword Inc., another company that deals with cryptocurrencies. Um, this is, you know, so this clearly is something, this bill is something that the cryptocurrency industry wants. Um, as for, you know, why we would have, uh, Gillibrand on this, I think you know it's certainly a misguided attempt to try to regulate uh, cryptocurrency. Um, you know, on her part. I mean, I think this is not going to be effective again if there even is a crypto industry after this. You know, major, major crash that is happening. Um, just you know, uh, as we are speaking uh, today in the morning. You know, over the past six months, Bitcoin has lost half of its value. Ethereum, sixty-eight percent. Litecoin, seventy percent. Um, and Coinbase's stock is down eighty percent, and that is two hundred five uh, dollars right there. So we're seeing what has really, over the past five or so years, turned from uh, something that was not in the public eye, not necessarily something that government even cared about, to a major industry that could be affecting uh, you know, certainly many people as part of the general economic collapse that we are seeing with the rise of inflation the rise of rents and the costs of really every good including you know gasoline diesel groceries all of these things the fact that the banks and finance capital have gotten so into cryptocurrencies um, and that they are such a volatile Currency uh, or commodity really shows us that this is actually going to have a significant impact. I mean, look, eighteen hundred people. I'm sorry, eleven hundred people losing their jobs. That's already significant uh, from Coinbase. So, you know, I, I think it's important to look at this uh, this bill that is coming through. But again, we can't do it without looking at the the massive massive crash that uh, cryptocurrencies are going through right now which really shows that they are not this liberatory thing that everyone was saying a decade ago that they would be um there are you know, certainly places that cryptocurrencies ha- and the blockchain technology itself have a purpose and a use. Um, but being part of finance capital is not one of those. It was not liberated. It was, in, a sense, in effect, co-opted into the global economic system uh, because it got popular and the banks, the venture capitalists, saw a way to capitalize, really, on the trend.
1: And, you know, Chris, whenever we make that statement about cryptocurrency, people always come back with, well, there are things called stable coins. I mean, how does this potential uh, legislation affect uh, the, the stable coin markets, which are supposed to be pegged to traditional financial assets like the dollar? Um, and, and how would this legislation have even uh, made it easier for individual crypto holders to keep from paying capital gains taxes
7: yeah well let's look at the uh, the uh, the stable coin so stable coin basically is well, as you said it's pegged to the dollar uh or another you know what they say call a traditional asset so it could be the dollar the euro another uh another currency um except that hasn't proved true either a company called Terra uh which said said that it was pegged to the dollar actually was uh, pretty much wiped out um it that stable coin collapsed uh now Binance uh, one of the companies involved is actually being sued uh for that as of uh Tuesday morning People have had, you know, money in this. And I think we should also recognize that the vast majority, just like with traditional stocks, the vast majority of cryptocurrency ownership is with a very small amount of people. It is not with, uh, you know, average folks like us and I'm sure most of the people who are listening to this show. But on the other hand, you know, there are now that banks have gotten involved in this, there are situations where you know, people's portfolios have cryptocurrency in them um, because they are invested in some sort of mutual fund or uh, other vehicle that happens to have cryptocurrency. So this could have a lasting impact on people. Now, the question, the other other question, um, you wouldn't have to pay under this uh, proposal, this proposed bill, capital gains tax when you use what they call digital assets or cryptocurrencies, to make purchases under $200, which really is just a complete, you know, it's a bailout for the industry and for people who hold cryptocurrencies. There's really no no reason for that at all.
0: Yeah. And Chris, from your perspective, <clears throat> what does a responsible use of the blockchain technology look like? You know what I mean? Like if, if this government was serious about um, uh, uh, using this whole uh, infrastructure for, you know, uh, uh, the benefit of society, I mean, what are some ways that it could perhaps be better employed uh, instead of with this cryptocurrency thing?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think that the currency aspect is just out of the question in general. I think when we're looking at blockchain, one of the things it does is it gives you and immutable and unchangeable history of changes to maybe a document, a contract, uh, some information, things like that. Those things could, in theory, be useful. And you know, IBM has done a lot of work uh, on the on blockchain and uh, you know its implications and its applications in business, um, also in healthcare. Interestingly enough, in terms of uh, medical research, and I think there's you know an under underreported and actually underfunded level of study, um, you know, around the other possible implications of the blockchain technology that is behind all of these cryptocurrencies. I think, you know, really we should be studying that and assessing, is it something that we can use for good? Is it something that is worth the trade-offs? Um, Bitcoin, of course, we know uh, as what is called a proof-of-work system, is awful for the environment. There are other, implement you know, implementations of cryptocurrencies and blockchain systems that have different ways of functioning that are not as bad uh, for the environment. Um, they're called proof of stake instead of proof of work. So it deserves really a lot more study at, you know, in serious study at the federal level and at the international level as well, in conjunction with uh, other countries who have been working on blockchain technology. And I think, uh, you know, uh, China is actually one of those countries, but we're not going to see that kind of uh, cooperation under the current system.
0: Well, that's a fact. And switching gears a little bit, Chris, uh, I also saw this piece in Wired talking about how uh, Apple is uh, looking to expand a touchscreen dashboard in cars. Now, I have to say my knee jerk reaction is to be very against this. Uh, this just feels like it's in the same. I know it's not the same as a self-driving car, but it feels like it's in the ballpark. You feel me? So I don't know. A- am I wrong here? Like like help us understand what's happening with this uh, whole development. Uh, uh, Development this platform CarPlay.
3: Well,
7: Sean, we know that you are not a fan of self-driving cars, and uh, I can't blame you for that. Yeah, last week Apple had its annual developer conference, WWDC, the Worldwide Developer Conference, and they showed off some of the. You know developments that they're making with the iPhone and the Mac and the iPad and all of that kind of stuff. But one of their pr- projects uh, is called CarPlay, and this exists now um, mostly in high-end cars, BMWs, things like that. But it also exists. You know, it, it's starting to trickle down into uh, you know mid-range cars, um, and yeah, basically, you pair your phone with your car, as many of you know, many people do, uh, to get their you know music playing but it actually shows you a view of your phone on the dashboard and what Apple is doing now um, and if you go to wired you can actually see this uh, this picture that is a kind of a – it feels like a mock up but it's really where they want to go it's got not just your your speed and you know the gear that you're in and your engine rpms it's got literally an iphone screen showing you the weather and you can tap your apps on it like phone or music or, uh, you know, things like the news. Um, It shows your your calendar. It shows the weather in other places. And it's, you know, really a distraction. So, I mean, I would only be comfortable with, you know, with this kind of thing if it was actually a self-driving car and the driver didn't have to worry about paying attention to. Whatever it is on screen, the text message popping up, the email that they're trying to respond to, uh, you know, at the same time is trying to actually drive down the street. You know, I think distracted driving is a major, major issue. And the fact that, you know, Apple and, you know, other companies are doing this as well. Google has uh, a similar system for Android, um, you know, to do the same. I think it hasn't been as widely adapted because of uh, various, you know, problems with the Android ecosystem and uh, um, and consistency. Consistency there, but this move to really tech up the driver uh, experience in a car doesn't take into consideration the safety implications here of somebody trying to respond to an email on their dashboard uh, while they're driving. I mean, I, I think it's just it's completely irresponsible. I think it's extremely dangerous.
0: Definitely. It's good to know that uh, my instincts were on point on this one. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, we thank you so much, as always, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spuddy. in Washington watch D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at
1: us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that at at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave, that's M-A-V-E, dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial in the Washington, D.C. area at 105.5 FM and 1390 a.m. from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble Live. Right now, rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're
0: very happy to be joined for the hour today by nepha Freeman. Coordinating committee member with the Black Alliance for Peace, organizer with Pan-African Community Action, and host of Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM. Nefa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Nefa, and, you know, we've been talking a good bit on the show here about uh, the recent Summit of the Americas, of course, hosted by the Biden administration in Los Angeles, California, at the behest of the Organization of American St- States, or as we like to call it, the Yankee Ministry of Colonies, and, you know, it, it's just so clear at this point, Nefa, now that um, the summit is over and done with, about how, you know it. It really, I think, backfired on the Biden administration and I think is in a way like another embarrassing sort of a a situation as it pertains to uh, the U.S. government and uh, uh, foreign policy. Uh, of course, uh, the, the main sticking point was that uh, uh, the U.S. government was not allowing uh, uh, three countries, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, as it happens, three uh, socialist countries targeted for regime change and and, and sanctioned almost into oblivion uh, by the United States, although there's been a slight rollback and sanctioned on um, Venezuela. And, you know, the accusation was that, you know, the, the, that these governments weren't welcome because they were undemocratic. And as a response, we saw uh, uh, different countries refusing to go, perhaps most notably the Mexican uh, uh, government under uh, uh, President Lopez Obrador, And uh, even some of the government uh, heads that attended the conference took their time on stage. Uh, to voice their complaints about how the whole thing was playing out. Meanwhile, there were these uh, alternative uh, events like uh, the people's summit for the Americas. I know the black Alliance for peace was was holding events around uh, imperialism in the hemisphere and things like this. And so all throughout the, that weekend, there were movement people from different parts of the world talking about solidarity, uh, talking about the importance of Pan-Africanism centering uh, uh, the core contradictions of capitalism capitalism and things like this. I mean, there were even, you know, uh, 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 there's a mass demonstration outside of the summit of the Americas that even Reuters picked up. And so it in a way, I mean, it really felt like at least for the moment that um, the uh, uh, the Biden administration, as it pertains to its presence in the Americas, I mean, is, is uh, to say the very least not looking that good enough. And, and I'm just curious sort of how it's all sort of sitting with you uh, now that it's sort of said and done.
8: Well, um, you, I mean, you said a lot right there that I, that I completely uh, agree with. I think it's, it's, and, and, in some ways, or actually in a lot of ways, inspired. I mean, I'm inspired by the response of the countries to not bow down to the, the hypocrisy and the, and the, um, the efforts of the U.S. to exert its dominance in this as coercion, coercive measures against the countries, and it's actually false and hypocritical uh, descriptions and characterizations of countries that far outstrip it in terms of democracy and human rights you know um and i think this is not only by the governments but also by the fact that the people turned out the people came some people came to u.s some people the u.s people themselves uh organized these alternative actions and these demonstrations against around this issue around the hypocrisy of the biden administration and and, and uh and you know not just the biden administration really let's just be real. It's not even just. The, it's just the U.S. government and its whole, you know, assertions that it represents democracy and all that stuff. And I think there's a lot that happened in terms of the actions that were happening in the United. I mean, um, in California on the West Coast around this summit. This was the first one in the U.S. If I'm not mistaken, I don't know if the first. One, I mean, the 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 first summit of the Americas was in 1994. I mean, you might have to help me with
0: my years. Yeah, I think that was in Miami. Mm-hmm.
8: And that was so that so this was the second one. I don't think there's been another one that was in the u s since that first one. um is that right? I don't think that's I think that's correct um but the fact that you know the, the you know u s tried to use uh the fact that it was being that it was being held here to try to Put some code. Put establish its own, um, what you want to call it. uh, Its parameters of participation exert its own will when it shouldn't be. When it shouldn't be used that way. The fact that you're hosting it shouldn't be a means to be able to talk about who can come, who can't come, and who's considered democratic or who's considered human rights abusers. Um, And that I think what's happening more and more is that the 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 mass of the people and even the government, other leaders of governments themselves, one the leaders of government themselves are realizing we don't the hypocrisy of the u.s is weakening its legitimacy in the world both on the grassroots level and at the level of states now this is a truly this is a multipolar world now and that also the um the the, the way the united states carries itself in the world as a rogue state that wants to exert its uh, dominance, militarily speaking, through sanctions, all of that, all for the purpose of um, extracting profits and concentrating power in the hands of the ruling class elite is a danger. It's an existential threat to the world. And so I think more more people are beginning to realize that and also beginning to accept it because I think there's, it's been out there for a while, but also realizing they have a responsibility to do what we can to weaken the dominance, to weaken this political and economic power that the United States has. And so you see, states uh, standing up, like you said, Mexico. There was Honduras and Guatemala, uh, who also, you know, uh, expressed their concerns or their their dis- displeasure with you know this thing that the U.S. was doing. And um, the the grassroots movements on the ground. I think the, what happened on the ground was really pivotal. And I think it, what happens is when we start beginning to see because a lot of the hypocrisy of the US is based on its domestic policies and the me- domestic conditions right here in the United States. I mean it has the 1 million people just died from COVID-19 unnecessarily within this country. There's a there's a, a rep- I mean what do you call it? uh not inf- inflation uh what's the other a recession there's an economic recession going on here that they won't, don't want to admit to, right? People are really suffering. There's the, the lack of basic fundamental human rights that these countries that they're condemning guarantee these human rights. They can, they, they, uh, guarantee uh, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba guarantee healthcare as a human right. They guarantee uh, education these things are human universal human rights and, and you can go to and all these you can go to uh kindergarten all the way up to college level and become a you know professional a doctor graduate school uh without any burden to the individual who is going or the families that are going completely free that's a that's a it's a human right guarantee by the state you don't have that right here and in fact if this country was democratic uh it was was had any semblance of democracy then you wouldn't have you and have things like uh the student debt this burdens people. And then the fact that these politicians can get up in front and promise to give some relief to it and then completely renege on these promises, the fact that if you, if if education was a human right in this country and should be a human right, uh, then there would be no such thing as student debt, that exorbitant student debt. There wouldn't be a such thing as the type of medical bills that put people uh, into bankruptcy and and have it, uh, have people even having to give foreclose on their homes and all types of things. Um, there would be some guarantee of a of jobs, uh, of a job. There would be just so many things around uh, service or social services that would, m- would make it so hard for people to survive. And this country has the gall to, to export death and destruction around the world, to, to call Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua undemocratic so they not going you know, to allow them to participate in the summit, but yet they will embrace uh, monarchies. Like Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, and and United Arab Emirates, and and support uh, an atrocious, a uh, very destructive and murderous war in Yemen by these countries, um, and so this is, you know, this is the kind of thing that I think, uh, you know, the people are waking up to and realizing that we have a responsibility to make these connections between. The the uh, the imperialist policies that this country leads in the world, the United States leads imperialism in the world. The NATO countries, the United States, NATO is basically United States internationalizing its militarism around the world. That's what NATO is. And so uh, at, at this point. And so now people on the ground are like, we have to not just call out imperialism, but we also have to forge connections internationally with grassroots movements on the ground in order to fight this thing tooth and nail and, and to expose the hypocrisy for what it is. You can't be, uh, you shouldn't be able to, to uh, the United States and the imperialist power shouldn't be able to act to... Uh, to claim the benevolence and, the, and these principles that they claim, and play the role that they play, uh, and play the real role that they play in the world without consequences.
0: Yeah, uh, real quick, um, I'm on the OAS website, and you're correct, Neffa, For this is the this was the the second uh, summit in the Americas with the with the first being the very first one in Miami, and there hasn't been another one in North America since 2001 when they had one in uh, Quebec City. Go ahead, Jackie.
1: Yeah, you know what you brought up, Netfa, about uh, you know the U.S. losing its grip on uh, control. Of countries in the global South. That's that's everybody else in the world that's not the U.S. and Europe. And you know we see this with the obviously the groundswell of support behind Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and the opposition. The support for the the opposition summit, the People's Summit, which was much more uh, robustly attended than the actual summit of the Americas. But I think we also see uh, the way the countries of the world and the people in these countries are uh, becoming more emboldened uh, as they should in challenging U.S. imperialism because they have been living under a form of warfare, if not, you know, direct boots on the ground, military intervention on, and coups and that kind of thing, thing. At least 40 countries in the world have been sanctioned, are now under sanctions, I think, by the United States government. And let's not forget that sanctions are an act of war. So you've got around three billion people in the world living under the economic ravages in some form of fashion that are imposed by the United States against their government that makes it difficult for them to uh, uh, enjoy fully the, the benefits that you just noted that their government's Provide for them the right to health, uh, health care, housing, education—you uh, know that kind of thing. So I, I think that the the uh, elevation in the conversation about sanctions that we have been having in the U.S. and that certainly people who have been living under sanctions around the world, uh, that has helped, I, I think, raise uh, the consciousness and uh, embolden the people around the world to stand up finally to the United States. Well, not finally, but to stand up to the United States en masse and and move us closer and faster to multipolarity. And And I think The summit of the Americas is a a, a reflection of the failure of this continued imperialist policies. I think that summit, it was just, you know, a really good indication of how badly imperialism is losing this war against the people of the world. And I'm wondering what you think about that piece.
8: Oh, absolutely, I think that the, the, what's happening with the people, and then we mentioned it's an existential, existential threat—the people's survival is at stake. So the more the people are becoming more emboldened, not only because the. The emperor, so to speak, is naked; has no clothes. But also because it's a question of survival that we, you know, people are are we are living under some of the most some people, when it comes to the, the impact that the US imperialist policies have or Western imperialist policies have on the world, um, it's a question that some of the most horrendous conditions that are, that people have faced in history, uh, particularly when they're. Uh, they're compounded by climate change where we're experiencing record droughts along uh different places around the world and that these things are exacerbating also con- conflicts and tensions but united states doesn't do it like if we just take uh we could talk about you know in eastern europe and ukraine and russia but we could also just take Af- uh in africa i think africa is much more stark in terms of east africa and the droughts that are happening in east africa like in somalia and these places the united states doesn't i mean it, there's no thinking and, and the media is part of this. We can't we cannot leave out the role of the media. There's no it does never even dawn or occur to people that there's ways to de-escalate tensions, that there's ways to bring uh, groups to some sort of negotiated settlements. There's ways and that these things and these negotiated settlements have to at least because you know, they have to at least begin with some uh, redistribution of resources land and power they have to begin with that and once you because without that that's why you have the extreme responses on the continent and so the united states it benefits for the united states to see africa in particular and this perpetual uh, perpetual quote-unquote violent extremism and terrorism that's going on where it becomes this power to come and and save uh, the, the you know, the poor Africans who can't get it together, who are just, you know, who uh, mm-hmm. right, and and never they never talk about how do we stop this? It's just perpetu. It's accepted that we're supposed to, you know, that there's nothing else but to give guns and power and drones and whatnot. So this does two things for the United States. One, it keeps Africa under the grip to be able to extract the raw minerals that it's that it needs to, in order to to ref- have its finished goods. All the particularly the extractive industries of oil and coltan and cobalt. And and even gold and these kind of things. But then also the the military industrial pro, uh, complex is an industry in itself. It must feed. And so if if there's no wars and conflicts anywhere, and you, you can have it most in Africa because, of, you know, I guess we would call it, I don't know if you want to call it anti-blackness or not. It, it's much more, the conditions are much more uh, accept or conducive there is that the, that it must have wars and conflict in order for weapons to be used, in order for them to manufacture more and, and, and for them to make money. And so there, there is, and then the, the question you brought up around sanctions, sanctions, uh, well, these, it might seem like, uh, disparate thoughts, but, when we talk about the the combination between militarism and and sanctions, I and mean, then we we completely talk, we we have to remind people that the asserted uh, goal, the the avowed goal of Western imperialism, particularly United States, is full spectrum dominance. I mean it. And everything they say when they talk about the world for the, their U.S. interest, they talk about U.S. interest all the way on the opposite side of the globe, as if it's just, you know, legitimate that they have interest there and they don't have to describe them, but they are interest and they will describe them as unfettered access to the raw, mineral, raw materials that other places have. And so when you want full spectrum dominance and you see, and I want to get to the other uh, challenges to that, you need. Sanctions, coercive measures that um, that utilize the in, the international institutions that the West has erected since the end of World War II, like the um, the World Trade Organization, the IMF, the World Bank, these and the international financial institutions, other things, and so and and people, we have to be clear that uh, these are just that the United States and other Western countries, they're not, they can't be because of the, the configuration the power dynamics in the world they can't be subject to sanctions but they can still level sanctions and we need to begin to define imperialism that these kind of ways this is the sophisticated and scientific understanding of what imperialism is because i you know you hear it and in, in the so-called the progressive left they just kind of band you the word around without any real definitions uh imperialism are these front the economic and predominant predominance uh, of these financial institutions and also the military and this military proliferation around the world with over eight eight hundred military basins and whatnot um this this is the only way that the western imperialism can maintain at this point in time in history maintain its dominance right now what's emerged and what the other the peoples the other people of the world see is an is an alternative and I know people going to call you up and and tell you that you had this guest on here that was all pro China or, or something <laughs> <laughs> but the the and, but the belt and road initiative that China initiated also, shouldn't be seen as China anymore. There's a number of over 100 some countries that I don't remember how many that are part of this Belt and Road Initiative. And, and, it, and it actually is. And it's not just the Belt and Road Initiative, not just China. There's also an emergence of a non aligned movement. There's certain alternative cooperation that are happening around the world that are not based on militarism, that are not based on coercion, that people are seeing the benefits from, even if they have to suffer other. Uh, things in their lives because of imperialism, but actually shows people the stark differences and the alternative that we should be embarking on if we're going to save the world.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spuddy Can Watch DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: So by any means necessary, you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open. to 1320 That's 2 0-2-5-2-1-3-2-0. Myself and Jackie Lubman continue to be joined by Nefa Freeman. And Nefa, speaking of the uh, People's Summit, in their last panel, they had a a very exciting um, sort of uh, addition to uh, uh, the program that they revealed there, where basically we saw three video messages, one from uh, Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canal, one from Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, and one from former Bolivian President Avo morales and you know we, we were just discussing this in the by any means necessary chat about i mean just you know just how impressive it was to see people who exude a legitimate kind of leadership i mean the way they looked the way they moved the way that they spoke the things that were saying i mean with just with real conviction i mean they they came off like people who should run governments right Now, when I look at Joe Biden, I don't see someone who looks like they should be running a government. When I look at Joe Biden, if I'm being honest, I don't even see someone who can like tell his backside from a hole in the ground. You know, if if I'm just being real. And so and one thing that stuck out to me that uh, President Maduro said, he said, there is a world beyond Washington. Right now, that's a simple statement, but it's a direct shot at, you know, the imperial hubris and the arrogance of the United States that blew up in their face uh, during this uh, summit, I think. And, you know, when you talk about, see, people get upset when you suggest that, um, you know, the Democrats and Republicans are more alike uh, than they are different. And I mean, Joe Biden, the the cat who was supposedly going to save us from Donald Trump, this is the same group of countries that the far-right reactionary John Bolton called the Troika of tyranny, is it not? So we see that fundamentally uh the orientation and posture towards these countries and towards u s foreign policy in Latin America in the Caribbean, and really in the hemisphere is fundamentally uh unchanged. You know what i mean and and I have to say that that is a part of what makes the the failure of the summit so delicious is that the u s was trying once again to isolate countries that were uh you know uh, uh that had the audacity to want to defend their own sovereignty and their own definitions of democracy and things like that, but ended up only further isolating itself. And like I mentioned earlier, even having some of the governments who did attend and who didn't boycott, voicing some of those uh, uh, same complaints. And so, you know, it, it really was an incredible feeling. And I think that it's actually important. Now, if I think it's important to have these kind of moments and movements because we see that, this, this, this beast of U.S. imperialism, I mean, this devilish, soul-breaking, humanity-crushing system that has wreaked such profound havoc on humanity, it's not invincible, right? What? It's not invincible. It can be fought and it can be beat. And this is something that I think we really have to this is a spirit, this revolutionary optimism that we're going to have to carry with us as things continue to intensify here in the United States, which is going to happen. Uh, You know, I believe you all were just talking um, in uh, before we went to break about, you know, how, uh, uh, you know, how the heat is rising. I was I was just looking at something on the way into the studio about how, you know, there, there are heat warnings all across the country right now. So if you look at climate change, if we look at the economic situation, which we all which we also touched on, when we look at um the all, these ongoing incidents of like organized, violent, uh uh fascist and far-right groups um uh uh coming into the streets of the United States, we're gonna need that revolutionary optimism to remind people that as powerful as this thing is, as big as it is, as well funded as it is. It can be beat And if you dare to struggle, then you dare to win. And and that can be a difficult thing to tell people when conditions are as they are. Never. But I believe this is a part of our work as organizers to assert this as a truth and use that as fuel to, to uh, 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 spur on the movement against all these things. You know what I mean?
8: Right. And, you know, Sean, what, what, you, what you bring up to me, what you're bringing up, brings to mind, to me, the pivotal nature of people within the United States. Uh, I think, you know, as we, we talk about, you know, we, we say things and we're realizing the, the legitimacy of the validity to things like not Not, you know, not, not only is a better world possible, but it's also necessary, those kind of things. But we in the United States, uh, we need to be more, um, it's really about the movements here. We definitely, like you said, it's important for us to understand this system is not invincible, and that it's incumbent upon us, and and it's actually, it's domination, or it's, you know, yeah, it's domination is really... Uh, commensurate with the level of disorganization of the people in the United States. You know, the, the, the masses in other countries, and I'm not saying they're perfect or it's any kind, I'm not going to rose-colored glasses, but the movements, particularly in Latin America, just because of a whole historical set of circumstances, not that people in Latin America are superior or anything like that, the movements are more mature. This this understanding that imperialism is a existential threat has been around for a while, and that it needs to be defeated and the fortitude it, 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 is, it has been around for a while, and the leaders. That you describe and how they speak and and the, what they impart when they talk, that's been an example of you know. In fact, any of these leaders that we can see has been at the in the center of the ire of U.S. imperialism. If we go back and hear exactly what they say, we'll come around with the same impressions, even if you know that 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 they actually have something legitimate to say that we can actually learn about the geostrategic and geopolitical conditions that the world has but within the united states the united u.s imperialism uh or basically u.s capitalism imperialism within the uh, united states does such a good job of trying to confuse people and also assert uh its invincibility in fact they make they try to almost make synonymous the idea that if you're invincible you in fact that might makes right you also if you're invincible then you deserve to be you know you know, be the, be the dominant thing, that you are an example of of morality or something like that. One, neither one of them are true. One, you're not invincible. That's one. And two, if you just, because you are powerful, doesn't legitimize you, what you say and what you assert and what you, prop, uh, what you propagate and what you uh, make happen in the world. And so we have to begin to realize that. We have to start saying, because during the... um. The Black Power Movement, and that actually goes back to the to the labor movement. Everything in this country, we have slogans that help us organize, and one of those is organize, organize, organize. We got to be organized. We have to begin to take that out of the realm of abstraction and describe what it means to be organized. Because some people think you organize and you don't belong to no organization. If you're not an organization, you're not organized, and so it means we have to take the most impact that the most. Uh, Down the most uh, directly affected uh, of the uh, um, oppressed people within this in this country, and then it happens in other countries. But we have to we have to do it here, where we are pulling our resources together. We're creating means of surviving against a system that doesn't support us. We're also creating some strategic uh, uh, strategic plan or, or way forward the the challenges the further challenges the legitimacy of this country in on some kind of legal level but also I mean, just to challenge it legally is just a strategy, but it's not its not a principle that everything legal is correct, because it's not. I mean, you know, certain things that were uh, abominations to humanity, like slavery, used to be legal. But we want to be able to use that avenue, but at the same time have things for those that have another, other avenues, and we have to um, challenge the legitimacy. Like, for example, in this country, you know, uh, well, in this country, that uh, our, our organizations fight for uh, against the indiscretions and the brutality of police, uh, in this country I and mean, we police repression, the militarization of police, all of that demonstrates how this country, uh, does not, is not an example of moral, uh, fortitude, but we have to find ways to challenge that situation, help our people survive for it. In other words, you know, the cut, the police are illegitimate in our communities. We can organize, uh, public safety for ourselves, and do this in a way that challenges the, constant, the legal or constitutional legitimacy of it. But at the same time, uh, uh, materi- or, uh, specifically speaking, organizing the people to create councils and and you know and and patrols or whatever we need that have come from the people to deal with the situations and the challenges that we have, whether it be intercommunal violence or whatever. We have to see the intercommunal, like the intercommunal, um, I hope I'm not going too much off of a tangent here, but the intercommunal violence that we see that the that the media is, you know, famous for putting in, in front of our faces on television to legitimize why there's more police needed and, and why we need to do things, you know, uh, I guess get the guns off the street. I, I don't disagree that there's too many guns going around, but the main thing is that our people are politically confused and don't know when you know how to organize that that intercommunal condition in the inside domestically inside the United states needs to be seen as counterparts to the commune to the conditions that working class particularly non white working class people face in other countries like in Africa, you know when we talk about the violent extremism and all that these are conditions that are born from the uh, from the concentration of wealth and power from the disenfranchisement of people, and they're not people aren't just born and they're and you know some inferior folks that just run around doing things. These are conditions that are born out of the oppressive systems that we face—patriarchy, capitalism, and white supremacy—as just to name—you know, just to kind of boil it down to those bare uh, denomin- common denominators. And so. To just back back to where we you know try to bring it back to what you, what you kind of asked or what what is that we have to uh, further organize here. When we organize here and deal with people here, we have to forge connections internationally. This country is very desperate. It doesn't like us making these connections. It doesn't like us not only saying it in terms of advocating anti-imperialist stuff, but actually making connections, I mean, forging relationships with people in other countries that are facing imperialism. But we have to do that. That is the Achilles heel of the system, and that is what they're afraid of. Right now they're in a, a state of desperation. and But we don't have a lot of time because these these people are they're so reactionary that they are militarizing the world, they're heating it up through climate change, they don't have, you know, there's no... They can't really conceive of uh, of anything where they are not empowered. That The power is not concentrated into that class.
1: And, you know, that wasn't a tangent at all. That was actually where we wanted to take the conversation that, you know, how we have to organize locally, um, domestically, and make those connections internationally. Because, Netfa, there was a, a recent report. Uh, on the D.C. office or from the D.C. Office of Police Complaints. Uh, This is its fifth annual report on complaints against the storied Metropolitan Police Department. And they found 1,263 allegations of misconduct by D.C. cops, 827 complaints. Harassment made up 50 percent of the allegations in 2021 with language and conduct being the second most reported offense, making up 24 percent of the allegations. And this is the thing. The report found that 92 percent of all of the uses of force mentioned in the report involved black community members in 2021. Now, it's only so many places in this city that we all live. <laughs> I mean, if, if we want to be honest, most of us live in Ward 7 and Ward 8. Four percent of the uses of force involve white community members in 2021 and an additional four percent involved Hispanic community members. So, Netfa, when we have that kind of information about one police department in one major city, the capital city of the country, and we see how black people in particular are not only over policed, but are brutally policed, oppressed, harassed, abused by the police, it is easy to make the connection internationally between the way we are policed here with, say, the way black people in Brazil. Are killed by the police. With the way uh, uh, Afro Colombians are uh, assaulted by the police, Well by you know, it, it, it is easier to make those connections when we see the patterns in our treatment domestically and the treatment of folks uh, uh, internationally who are suffering under the same imperialist system.
8: Right. It's easy to make those connections to see uh, the intersections and the interrelationship between uh, white supremacy and and capitalism because we're talking about a class. There's also a class element there. Of course, you know, it crosses class lines because the police don't always know who's, you know, they can't look at you and tell what class you are all the time. But what I think it also speaks to, and this is what I think we need to begin to understand our movements here, is that this also demonstrates and and reflects the role of police in society. These are not, um, you know, misbehaving, you know, it's not, it's not about misbehaving cops or definitely the bad apples. So we all know it's not bad apples. But in other words, that the role and function of police is to keep, to maintain basically in the U.S. settler colonialism. And that those of us who are of, you know, non-white working class folks, people, um, as we assert our human rights, as we if we do anything that, that tries to struggle or uh, res- uh, erect a different world, that is a challenge to the status quo. That is a challenge to uh, the ruling elite and what they how they benefit from the, ex- the super exploitation of the masses of the people. And the, the role of the police, ever since their inception, has been to maintain that. And the, as and then when you talk about the statistics, you said ninety two percent. Of the and just in DC, that's that's a you know I, I didn't you know know that statistic but this is you know it's such a grand when you think about the the fact that DC is becoming so gentrified um, it's really really but it also demonstrates back earlier what we were talking about in terms of the desperation of the system there's things happening under that the system is not sustained was not viable um, and that as a result of that. There's this also, you know, plays out in terms of it plays out in ways that we can't really describe all the circumstances. It plays out into increased repression by uh, the forces, the agents of the state whose role is to spread. protect and serve uh, the ruling class and, and and protect their property. And that's really what it is. All this other stuff is just PR golf that they just, you know, that they tell people, but we really want to know, you know, but we really have to understand that that's what this is. And as a result, there will also, because, because, you know I don't know if we were about to bring it up, but there is a, also a case that the hearing happened today in the d c hearing uh with our comrade sister april goggins of black lives matter d c who has uncovered um uh, some years of COINTEL pro like activities against her and this means that they've doing it against other people <laughs> you know but she probably uh it probably was a lot of it concentrated on her because of her high profile and her dedicated work Tyler's work around the issues of of uh, uh, police brutality and murderous, you know, policing, um, and that they've been surveilling it. They've been harassing people in their network. They've been these are counterintelligence program type activities. The counterintelligence program being the FBI's uh you know a secret program during then now this stuff is legal and so and we have to understand that these things have been made legal on a, on a federal level and that the federal government and the so called the, the well the department of injustice works with local police departments. It militarizes them. And part of this 1033 program that we talk about, we try to expose the 1033 program, which transfers military, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, military equipment to local police departments. um, Of that military equipment, it's not just guns and tanks, although it is that. It's also surveillance equipment. It's also, you know, these kind of things are, are mixed up into that. And so they are leveling this type of activity against those of us who are trying to fight for the human rights of people, our right not to be you know beaten up by a cop, our right not to be railroaded into prison and mass surveilled. instead of really protecting the people that what they profess, they're actually Using or, or committing resources and energy and time to surveil and derail the people who are fighting for basic fundamental human rights. And this is we, this case we're talking about that April's going through. That and I'm glad she what she did was file the Freedom of Information Act request because she realized, well, they're you know they're doing things, and I want to see what they got. But we want to know, and this is what April says, which is that she did it because it's not just about her. That if she's going through it, then other people are going through it. And that we have to be able to expose and show uh, if, if when we do this, we're we're further demonstrating to people the illegitimacy, the moral decadence and, corrupt, uh, you know, uh, obscenities of, of this system.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington D.C. I'm your host Sean Blackman here with Jackie Luekman, and as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. Two zero two five two one one three two zero. That's two. Zero two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Jackie Lucman is here. Nefa Freeman is here. And we have a caller on the line here. Comrade. Tell us what's on your mind.
8: Hi, this is Tom Wayne from Washington, DC. I have a question from Mr. Baraka. I'm sorry, for Mr Um Mr. Freeman. Um, I was wondering if he could uh, tell us what the difference was between the, the people summit and there was this other stuff that was going on. It was called the anti imperialist summit. Does he have any uh understanding of what the distinction is?
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you for calling in, comrade. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Enough of Freeman. Your thoughts.
8: Well, first, um, I'm a little offended that, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 Excuse me. that John Rockefeller. Always, always causing trouble. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I'm actually, you know, uh, I'm honored. So, um, you know, I wish I could you know, speak better on that, but anti imperialist uh summit that was it's it two it, both of them were challenges to this big you know the summit of the americas that, that the states uh, were hosting were sponsoring that everyone was protesting so both of them were challenges to that or you know the anti imperialist summit was more um I, I would think, you know, the more uh, more radical, more leftist anti-imperialism was the thing. It was it did, it was to bring about forces who who realized that decolonization and anti-imperialism need to be central to what we are doing, and it's not just about you know uh, criticizing the governments and thinking that they're going to do differently. And I'm not claiming that the people summit, the that, that was the basis of it. It was the, uh, you know, was that, but I know it was, it was more broad based and had a little bit of all those elements in it. And so the anti-imperialist summit, it was also, uh, one of the it, black Launcher of peace, which I'm a member of, I don't know if he said that was one of the conveners of the anti-imperialist summit, one of, of several, um, and it happened, um, I can't remember the, I think it was, the July, I mean, June 5th. Um, and so it had a number of speakers that represented all these different organizations and also even people's movements from other countries. Um, and so, yeah, um, that's the best I can do in terms of describing. Um,
0: yeah. And, you know, we were talking before the break about, um, this, this situation about surveillance, around uh, uh, organizers and activists, or specifically speaking of April Goggins, who uh, for years has been um, a movement leader here in Washington, D.C., uh, with Black Lives Matter D.C. And, you know, what that shows me, NEPA, is that, you know, the tactics of um, COINTELPRO never stopped. And not only did they never stop, as is often pointed out, that um, a lot of the things that happened under COINTELPRO were illegal, but they're now legal. You know what I mean? And so we we, we, we we must and particularly in this age of um nearly ubiquitous surveillance and the complete erosion of our privacy here in this country, on top of the heavy militarized police. Character of, uh, of this country, and in in DC in particular, which I would argue is one of the most um, policed countries in the country in terms of the sheer number of police agencies that we have here. Um, I think it just shows that the government is obviously still quite concerned <clears throat> about you know these different uh, militant movements that are in the streets and have, uh, frankly, in my opinion, been the most uh, consequential political force in the United States in the post-civil rights era. And so it's no surprise then that they're a little reluctant to uh, uh, release the spying that that they do on us. But I think we should also bear this in mind, Nefa, as we move forward, that um, in the same way that, uh, uh, you know, a repression breeds resistance, resistance then also can bring about more uh, a repression as the state tries to uh, fight back against movements and people that are really uh, Uh, trying to to change things, and as such, we can't lose sight of our ultimate goal and must uh, use that to further strengthen our organization.
8: Yeah. And you know what uh, also brings them to mind? You mentioned several factors and several methods and means in which the basically we'll call it the police day in which fascism, um, we can maybe call it some form of democratic fascism. I've heard Jaruba Ben Wad referred to it that in terms of this facade that there's a democracy and that, uh, and that also that there is some level of. Democratic or decision making at the level of the oligarchy, the ruling class, because this is an oligarchy. Let's face it. I mean, this is a this a, it's, this this system in the United States and how it carries out foreign policy is a is is for the ruling class, for the rich, and by the rich. But what what also brings to mind what, when you were talking was also the the compounding of this surveillance state with big tech. The use of, you know, the, all of these, you know, the, uh, the, uh, online stream displays like Amazon and Google and, you know, YouTube and all these Facebook, uh, all of that, Twitter, um, these things are private corporations, but they become almost, you know, they, Uh, In terms of their use, the commons almost like utility, like people need electricity or water or something like that. The way they're the way they're used um, and very present. Even like for example, this this was what I thought of when I was watching the hearing about uh, they was dealing uh, addressing the the lawsuit the egg broke gardens, but this was being streamed on YouTube and this is a a public hearing by the court and they're using YouTube stream because they, they didn't have an in-person thing. So it was an online thing. But so, so almost becomes like this, you know, whatever thing. And, but we're seeing emerging and I know you, you all know it quite well that these big tech countries, supposedly they're, I mean, companies that they're private and, you know, but they actually are in collaboration and helping with the increased, um, uh, uh concentration of information, the control of information, using algorithms, using bannings from their platforms, all of that stuff, using even propaganda stuff where they put, oh, this, you know, outlet is, you know, uh, sponsored by this country, you know, in ways that try to make it, you know, malign it or... or stigmatize it or something like that so we have to begin to you know also look at this in terms of the, the surveillance i think we have to find ways to not if not just rely, if not rely on them at least you know uh do different things but just the whole pervasive aspect of surveillance and the fascist measures in terms of leveling to being taken against people uh we have to con- we have to better unpack that and as we fight for better world because i don't you know frankly i don't know your opinion, but. I'm not sure how much we can, is this, are these online platforms, these social media and the role that they play, are we in a uh, as a society, in the world, because they're all over the world, are we in a place of no return, a point of no return? We've got generations of, of people who don't know what it was like before these things existed, right? And if they if we are in a point of no return, that they are now an integral part of society, which I think in some ways we just got to. Reel back some, reel back some of it. But if they are, if we can't reel back all of it, then that means they also have to become the targets of our, like what we nationalize. They got to become the common.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. That they should be democratized. Sorry to cut you off, Nef. But I do want to squeeze in another call in here, real quick. Uh, Lamont, tell us what's on your mind.
9: Hey, what's going on, guys? Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to to, to kind of let you guys know, I, I just read a book uh, not too long ago. It's really interesting. It's called um, Pentagonism, a Substitute for Imperialism, written by a gentleman named Juan Bosch, who was actually, uh, he was like the first leftist president of the Dominican Republic since the assassination of Rafael Trujillo. Um, this was uh, back in 1965. And, you know, it, it's, it's just interesting to me because that, So Rafael Trujillo came into power by, uh, you know, the U.S. military put him in power, uh, the U.S. Marines to be exact, and he ruled the country for many years and committed all sorts of atrocities. So Juan Bosch was the first leftist president democratically elected by the people. But unfortunately, since there was such a a, a, like a right wing chokehold over the country, he didn't last too long in office and and was actually ousted in a coup, again, supported by the U.S. No, no surprise there. Um, This was back in 19. So he wrote this. Book in 1968, but this all happened, you know, a couple years prior to 1965. But it's just amazing to me that this started. Early on back then. The US was already doing this way back then and God knows how long, even before then. So it's just like this this full spectrum dominance, world hegemonic idea like grew legs fast, and then it's just been like this this machine out of control ever since, I feel like, you know? And another thing that's surprising to me is that so Lyndon B. Johnson uh in 1965 ordered um, you know, like 20 to thirty thousand US troops to intervene in the Dominican public to kind of quell uprisings and quote-unquote restore order, while at the same time, you know, launching the Great Society here in the U.S. So again, I'm just saying, it's funny that for a very long time, I feel like the leadership class in this country has been speaking um, from both sides of its mouth, you know, because it was a total bloodbath for 24 hours in the Dominican Republic when this happened in 1965. So I, I just wanted to, you know, throw that out there. Very interesting book, if you guys get your hands on it, by Juan Bosch, it's called um, uh, Pentagonism, uh, a substitute for imperialism, because, sorry, just last thought, the thing that helps me to understand this better is that he says so think the Pentagon as, you know, the security command control center for the U.S. Pentagonism is that on a global scale. So, i.e., world hegemony, uh, i.e., military industrial complex, i.e., insert whatever you want there. But he knew this way back in 1968. So, you know, that that's what I wanted to, you know, throw out there. Thank you guys so much for taking my call. Appreciate it.
0: Well, we appreciate you, Lamar. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Appreciate the recommendation. I've put it on my wish list. (laughs) Neva Freeman, your thoughts?
8: I, I like. I appreciate the call too. I mean, I, yeah, that, that's that's really good. It, it shouldn't be any surprises. You know, these things were, in terms of the the uh, embryo nature, embryonic nature of them, were being formulated. And also, I think the call also brought up the hypocrisy and how they will support, you know, mass destruction and murderous and, and at the same time, yeah, I mean, we could, you know, the Dominican Republic, to Haiti, to all kind of places, Yemen, I all that, and then have the call to stand up there as if they're more benevolent and that they represent something else. Uh, you know, this is, this is what they have to do. But yeah, I'm, I, I appreciate, I'm glad I didn't hear about the book before, and I didn't know about this. So I uh, appreciate the recommendation. Jackie Lukman.
1: Yeah. You know, I looked this up really quickly and uh, the, the description for the book, a quick blurb from Duke press, which is the publisher says that Juan Bosch describes, uh, and I'm reading it as Pentagonism, because I looked at the word and I thought, well, I I don't quite get, but it's literally Pentagonism, is a giant conspiracy of big business and the military establishment replacing imperialism as a means of economic exploitation. It differs from imperialism because, and get this, the first victims are the people of the United States, which the Pentagonists have converted into a colony. How many times do we say on this show, do our guests say on this show, that we live in the domestic colony of the United States? Now, this man from the Dominican Republic in 1966 pointed that out. And we are still in the process of political education, hipping our people to this fact in 2022. We still got a lot of work to do, Sean.
0: Oh, that's a fact. That's a fact. Yeah. Very interesting sort of concept, the way that uh, excuse me, that Bosch is um, evaluating it there. And, you know, I think this is why, you know, it's important that we uh, expand our readings in our horizons when we talk about wanting to study uh, uh, imperialism and things like this. And I mean, I think it's important to point out, as that blurb did, about how imperialism is not a set of policies, right? imperialism is uh, an entire system in and of itself. And Bosch was correct to talk about sort of the internationalization of, of capital and the role that that plays and how all these things uh, not only come together to create incredible suffering for people around the globe, but yes, inside the United States. And I actually think that that's an aspect of uh, analysis of imperialism that I think sometimes gets missed. It isn't just about what the U S is doing that impacts other people in other countries, but how that blowback visits us here. It's like we mentioned on uh, uh, the show before. And I mean, we have Nefa Freeman here who is, you know, someone very familiar with the 1033 program and so we see how the the militarization of uh, uh, you know US assets across the globe come right back home and we see those vehicles and those weapons now in the hands of domestic police being pointed at us in the streets and so that's just one example of uh, many ways that imperialism really impacts us not to mention the fact that our money is stolen and uh, uh, dumped into these wars to create death destruction and bloodshed across the globe I mean this is what binds us in a single garment of destiny with the poor, working, and oppressed people of this earth. And so I think having that clarity is going to be very important as we talk about really developing this international anti-imperialist struggle. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, to Nefa Freeman so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with our new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.
2: By Any Means Necessary.